You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. The news this past Tuesday of former police officer Derek Chauvin's conviction in the murder trial of George Floyd was met by advocates for police reform with celebration, including here in the Bay Area. I have a song that I always sing called by James Brown says, I feel good. And today, right now, I'm feeling a lot lighter. But after a year of activism and organizing for criminal justice reform, what's really changed? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we're going to be speaking with a leading South Bay activist to hear what he'd like to see on the reform agenda going forward. Um, hopefully we'll head to more transparency, uh, more holding police officers accountable. And then in the second half, with so many wondering just how long this reform moment will last, we'll turn to history for some answers. These times when change happen are often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. First up, what comes next for reform advocates? We're actually going to get the view of one advocate who's been on the program before, checked in with him right in the middle of the protest days that followed the murder of George Floyd. And so it's about time for an update, I would say. Talking about here, Pastor Jethro Moore, who heads the San Jose Silicon Valley NAACP. Welcome back to the program, Pastor Moore. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Glad to have you. Uh, So I know that Tuesday evening after the verdict came in, you helped organize something of uh, a celebration out in front of San Jose City Hall, uh, drawing together a number of local reformers as a way to mark the occasion with some music and some dancing. Uh, But definitely striking to me, uh, this was a celebration that included quite a few tears as well, uh, coming from family members who feel that their loved ones have still yet to receive justice. So uh, to start things off, hoping to get your view on what that night was all about. What were you celebrating? And uh, on the other hand, what were you hoping to highlight about the work still left to be done? Well, we were celebrating a a milestone in uh, policing for me and for the community. We were taking our breath back, I guess you will say, um, even the band hadn't played in a year, so we've all been separated and locked up for a year. We're all itching to get back together. And and to see that police officers were finally, uh, this police officer was charged and found guilty was a sigh of relief. We didn't know if our family and friends across this nation and across this world would be out at the night, you know, uh, upset, the young kids taken to the streets, more arrests, more anarchy. Uh, and uh, we were celebrating the fact that police officers came forward for me and they testified against a bad officer. Mm. We were celebrating for this lady in New York who won her reinstatement and back pay for stopping a fellow officer from possibly choking a man to death being handcuffed. Uh, We're celebrating her victory and the fact is that she was made right and whole as well. Mm. We want police in our community but what that looked like is not what it is today. 
-hmm. and, and that's the problem. And police should understand is we understand they do too much and we want to take some of what they do away from them. Uh, we don't think they should be doing mental health calls. We don't think they should be rooting out homeless people. There are just certain fields that we do not feel, even say traffic stops, there are mm -hmm. certain fields we do not feel they should no longer have to do. And they can focus on, uh, if you want to say real crime or real important issues. Uh, uh, um, and finally, a black family got justice, but that's just was the start of justice. So someplace I read, you have to celebrate the small victories when you have them. Yeah. Uh, speaking right now to Pastor Jethro Moore, who once again heads the San Jose Silicon Valley NAACP. And uh, we should also mention he is a commissioner for the California State Board for Peace Officers Standards and Training, uh, which helps set standards for police officers in California. Uh, so fair to say that you are quite familiar with the various reform debates in policing that have been playing out. Uh, and there's been quite a few of them over this past year. I uh, uh, want to discuss that next. I know you've been talking a lot about decertification, this notion that certain kinds of police misconduct should lead to officers losing their badge. California lawmakers are taking up a decertification bill once again this year. Uh, tell us why you see that as an important step. Well, decertification is another way uh, uh, to keep a bad police officer from uh, slipping through the hoops and staying on the police department. Uh, sometimes when they mess up, we'll say, or not uh, to achieve, or, or they think something's coming after them, you will see them take a lateral to another department. Mm. And uh, another department, there are some uh, things set up to test and look for these things. But overall, we still, the police officer is able to get by and keep his license to protect, uh, practice policing. Mm. If a lawyer can be disbarred for, for bad practices in law, well, how come a uh, police officer can't be decertified for his bad practices? How come he's not held responsibility? That gets us all into all other stuff with this arbitrator. Even when we do have good police chiefs that try to get rid of bad officers, they then show up with the union with an arbitrator that puts him back in, even though this has happened. Uh, and uh, he said he's done some grave things. And they know even as we look at the Shiva, the case of Minnesota, he had 18 infractions, mm. 18 complaints. So there were some issues, there were warning signs, but because of maybe the union and other things, uh, um, um, he was able to stay in policing. Yeah, I think uh, the opposition would say the devil is in the details there. Uh, I think law enforcement organizations making the case that the legislation as it's been presented so far sets the standard too low for when officers should lose their badges and uh, essentially arguing that if that were put in place, uh, officers would feel that they could get fired for anything and they become ineffective because they'd always be looking over their backs, uh, trying to, you know, taking a step back in many situations, worried that this could get them in trouble. What do you say to that concern? If their intent is, is good. They would, I don't think that, uh, that, that that intent would come out if they were trying to do the right thing. And then and I think that would reflect after repeatedly having mistakes in a, in a similar area or the similar complaint of use of force or, or bad language or pulling people over, cursing people out with all the video cameras, you you have it now to show it, you know? So so the camera protects them as well as it protects the citizen. So so that that's, I'm kind of, uh, I stay away from that, but that's just an excuse. And we wouldn't be having to push for this uh, decertification of this process if the union would actively done something to correct the problems instead of being part of the problems themselves, you know? And so, um, um, and that's not what policing should be about. If you look at Robert's, Peel's nine principles of policing. That is not what police are. Police are the only ones in the community polices itself. The police are the only ones in uniform that get paid to police us. So we have to learn how to talk people down and not be the ones that escalate the situation. Yeah. 
want to discuss with you one of the perhaps snags in this reform effort that has been coming up in over the last maybe six months or so, and that is the very stark rise in violent crime and uh, murders in a number of cities around the country. Uh, In Oakland in particular, I know that it's given uh, a panel that's been given the task of coming up with uh, reform items. Uh, It's given some members on that panel a certain amount of pause, uh, reconsidering whether or not taking money away from police is appropriate given this uh, surge in violent crime. What do you make of those concerns right now, and, and how can they be addressed while keeping this reform energy going? I think, again, most of these murders, and I don't know what type of murders or why the murder happened, it's a terrible thing, right? But the police isn't there when the murder happens. So with having another cop is not going to stop it from happening necessarily. It's not going to, it might deserve some armed robbery or something. But when you say murder, you know, I look at it as different. And again, I think mental health services, what this country does not want to deal with is definitely needed. Uh, 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 the, the way we issue allow people to have guns is definitely needs to be looked at. I don't want to take any, I'm a second amendment right believer. I am a gun o- owner, but at the same time, there should be training and teaching and we need to check who has these guns, how, has these weapons. So um, that doesn't have to be coming from a policing standpoint. And in these communities where we have these high murders, uh, again, let's look and see what services aren't, aren't happening. Uh, uh, as an example of this, in San Jose, we had a lot of kids that were getting arrested in the 95122 area. So we learned to look to see let's, what's going on in this, in this particular area and take away uh, and, and put more resources in that area to help the community uh, deal with uh, crimes of petty theft uh, and, and other things. And so um, that is how uh, you, we, we could use it to refund it. But I just don't think that giving... Um, giving another policeman, giving another gun, or giving a bigger gun, or putting six cars. Um, like I'll say, say, I don't know the, the specifics and what's going on in Oakland and the Chinatown, but that's a, a cultural mix of Black and, and Asians and Latinos. And um, I don't know, maybe they're having community me- meetings. And But what I thought was interesting when you go through there, I didn't see nobody trying to bring, I'm not saying it's not happening, but bring those three cultures together to talk about how we can make our community more safer for each other is by knowing each other and working with each other because cops will tell you the crimes are solved by the community and our information more than it's solved by uh, great detective work is according to TV, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose in closing, since it ha- has been a year since we've checked in, I'm, I'm just curious to hear your sense of how, what's been accomplished over the last year, how much momentum has been built up, and uh, your hopes that things might continue along this path. I mean, we should also flag the fact that uh, Rob Bonta, the East Bay Assembly member, uh, was confirmed just a few days ago to serve as California's next attorney general. He's considered uh, quite the progressive uh, lawmaker and also has championed a number of criminal justice reform pushes himself. So it seems like uh, he now has the opportunity to exact some of that change in uh, a higher seat of power. Uh, Just taking it all together, what do you make of this moment and, and where we might be headed? Um, hopefully we'll be headed to more transparency, uh, more holding police officers accountable, more, more again, transparency, more release of information. If police believe they're doing such a good job and they're doing everything right, then release everything. We have oversight from the outside. Like I've often said, the military has a, uh, civilian oversight. Police don't want civilian oversight. Why, what are you afraid of? So we're at a point now where we need to uh, uh, go back and uh, uh, get back to going toward that 21st century police model. Uh, I also support whatever Bonta comes out with for transparency in police shooting. 
outside investigators coming in uh, to a community, getting rid of the arbitrator process for police and de-escalation de or um, um, decertification of police officers, uh, uh, losing their police, police badge. Um, um, as far as all that goes, that's what I look for. And like I say, when a cop shoots somebody and he does something wrong, within uh, within 30 days, they should release the name of the police officer. They, I don't see why some states would do it right away. I hope Bonta will make it mandatory that all police departments in 72 hours or whatever time, make sure note all of the next to can are notified and, um, and that the name of the victim is released uh, when they can as well as uh, the officers that were involved. We need to know their names and the camera footage should be released. Just like we're seeing in other states, why in this state of California, who claims to be progressive, are we not doing that? Very closing thought. Uh, I remember on Tuesday, you were giving a comments at a press conference. You said that you, you were feeling lighter after the verdict. Uh, is that feeling still holding? Are you still feeling lighter? You know, and, and being a black man, we, we feel light for the whole 32 hours, maybe 48 hours, I guess. And then before we, before the announcement could get out, we got two more black kids down by shooting the police. Yeah. You know, and so it's, um, we, we dance and you still go home. For me, I go home and hug my sons, Jay-Z and Josiah, and give them a kiss and uh, hold on my wife. And we just look, you know, what more we have to do to protect these young black boys as I let them venture further and further away from the home, hmm. knowing that they're gonna run up on a cop. And as my son is big, as tall as I am now, yeah. that they don't mistake him for some bad guy in a community uh, and instead of my son, or instead of just a, a good boy. So um, yeah. that comes all rushing back in when you see all the things that's just happened. Yeah. Know? So that's what, that's how I feel, you know? So I was great and so I say you have to celebrate your victory when you get it. Uh, for me, because I have to go right back into the battlefield and uh, experience more harm and uh, more day. Like I said that day, uh, each one of those families up here, I wasn't part of them. I don't know their families, but I feel their loss. You know, I feel their agony and I feel their pain. And they just want answers a day in court. Yeah. Well, I... Heartbreaking that uh, so many families have to have those conversations and those feelings. Uh, and so just a, a reminder of the very complicated feelings that is coming out of uh, this week. Uh, we have been speaking there once again to Pastor Jethro Moore, who heads the San Jose Silicon Valley NAACP. Uh, thank you, Pastor Moore, for spending some time with us. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're taking stock of the movement for police reform following this past week's guilty verdict for former police officer Derek Chauvin. Up next, to try to get a sense of what this moment might mean going forward, we're going to take a look back and consider where this all fits into the broad history of the civil rights movement. For some help thinking that all through, I spoke recently with Claiborne Carson, Professor Emeritus of History at Stanford and the founder of the university's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. Here's that conversation. Professor Carson, thanks so much for being on KCBS In-Depth. Good to be here. So in speaking with a number of local advocates uh, for police reform over this last week, uh, my sense in speaking with them is that there is this question hanging in the air right now, uh, the question of, is this moment... Uh, a turning point or 
just a blip on the historical trajectory. You know, uh, uh, the verdict on Tuesday obviously made many folks very optimistic for the prospect of further change in the criminal justice system. Uh, But at this moment, achieving those changes is uh, far from certain. So uh, taking this question on, I'm hoping your perspective might be helpful here, Professor Carson, uh, because uh, for anyone who does not know your biography, in in addition to studying the civil rights movement, you also participated in it as well, uh, taking part in numerous protests during the 1960s. So uh, as someone who has experienced the broad sweep of civil rights history firsthand, how can we tell when we're living through a genuine point of inflection? Well, we really can't tell after a single event like the verdict that came in this week. Um, I, I would compare the, uh, the verdict and the Black Lives Matter movement of the last year uh, to that period, perhaps in 1963 and during the 60s, you know, when we saw the ugliness of segregation. Uh, that was the year of the Birmingham campaign. I think James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time, came out. Uh, there were a lot of protests, not just in at the March on Washington, which I attended, um, but also protests in many cities throughout the United States. So there was a sense that change was in the air, but we have to remember that it took a year after that uh, for the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, um, two years after that for the passage of the Voting Rights Act, um, so change, uh, we'll see, you know, whether this is this um, upsurge of interest and, and protests leads to concrete reforms. You know, if, if, if this is simply a single uh, verdict, it could simply represent the, the fact that there was a cell phone there and everyone got to see it. But in most cases, uh, the police report that was filed would have been the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that in many places, that'll still be the end of the story, uh, because uh, a lot of police activity does not take place uh, videotaped by people other than police. And uh, so I think we'll have to wait to see if there's real reform. To highlight the importance, just for a second, of that video recording of the killing of George Floyd, uh, if we think back to the history of civil rights, those vivid images of brutality, whether of police brutality or, or of mob brutality, those were really catalytic moments throughout the history uh, of uh, civil rights. Tragically, these uh, keep coming up again and again. So uh, the incident uh, with George Floyd can really be thought of as uh, part of this uh, long sweep of history in that way. Well, well, certainly uh, seeing teenagers beaten by police and fire hosed in Birmingham, um, you know, the, the ugliness of segregation should have been apparent to, to anyone, but it took photographers, uh, it, took, it happened in a major city where uh, the uh, major newspapers around the world would get uh, photographs of what was happening in Birmingham. Uh, but um, anyone who noticed anything would realize that even without those photographs segregation was still bad 10 years earlier in fact probably even worse and the conditions in a small town in mississippi were probably much worse than in birmingham but no one was there to photograph how terrible uh, the jim crow system was in the south no one is there to photograph when the freedom riders uh, come to Birmingham in 1961 and are beaten with the uh, 
support, uh, I guess, the blind eye of the police. They knew that the Freedom Riders were going to be beaten, and they conveniently stayed away until the beating was over and then came in and, and no one was arrested and prosecuted. Um, so, so I think that it takes time before these incidents, uh, even with respect to George Floyd, there have been other verdicts, as you well know, over the last 20 or 30 years um, that didn't go um, against the police. And, uh, and, and therefore, there, the reforms that were needed did not happen. Um, and I think in this case, we're, we are fortunate that there was a jury willing to convict. But again, the, the circumstances were so unique. We don't know if the next uh, police killing will have that kind of evidence available. Speaking once again to Claiborne Carson, a professor emeritus of history at Stanford and the founder of the university's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. You mentioned a second ago uh, a sense of similarity to the feeling that change was in the air back in 1963. And you also mentioned that, of course, what followed was uh, two monumental pieces of legislation, the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And that has really uh, reshaped the, the course of American history in the decades that followed, what would it be like? I mean, if, if we are drawing that parallel to 1963, do you have the sense that that scale of change might be coming next? I think it could be if the pressure stays on and the political climate is right. Um, I think we have an administration that is at least open to those kinds of reforms, uh, just as uh, the election of Lyndon Johnson in 1964 opened the door to um, uh, major legislation, although at the beginning of his uh, term, no one would have expected Lyndon Johnson to be the civil rights president. And just as I don't think people expected Joe, uh, Joe Biden to be a um, you know, major reformer. Um, and, and we also have to remember that these times when change happen are very short. And sometimes the legislation is not sufficient. Um, you know, it's, it's drawn up and it's usually a compromise among people who want greater reform and people who don't want any reform at all. And so we find that, uh, you know, for example, the 1964 Civil Rights Act did not cover voting rights. So therefore, the next year, they had to go back and, and correct that deficiency and, uh, and, and make it a stronger uh, law against um, voting discrimination. And, and I think we also have to remember that the period of reform of the mid-1960s was followed by a white backlash and uh, the success of the Southern strategy. Uh, the movement of tens of millions of, of white voters, particularly in the South, from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Yeah, and that changed American politics for the next 50 years. So we have to always remember that these, these times when change happen are often brief. So you want to get as much accomplished as possible and to make the, the change as dramatic as possible. But that's, that depends on Congress. And, and as we know, um, one of the things that Lyndon Johnson had that Joe Biden doesn't have is he controlled both houses of Congress for two years. 
and that enabled him to pass a, a great deal of of progressive legislation that still is with us today. Right, and you know, speaking about the uh, surprising consequences that uh, the civil rights movement might uh, might have had. What followed the 1960s, of course, was uh, the Nixon administration. And then in the decades that followed that, we saw mass incarceration. So it's not always uh, a clear line from the movement that's taking place on the streets to the uh, policy change that is occurring in Washington. Uh, uh, so I suppose the, the uncertainty that the advocates I'm speaking with are feeling right now is uh, warranted. Well, I, I think that um, one of the things that also happened in the mid-1960s is that because of the um, what were called riots, um, I, I would call them rebellions in, in cities, um, because of that, police departments were beefed up. Policing became much more militaristic and brutal after the 60s um, because uh, one of the reasons was that they began to um, get military-style weapons. You know, we had uh, SWAT squads. Um, you know, that didn't really exist. That that notion of that the police could um, raid uh, some place and come with uh, with you know, as I said, military-style weapons. You know, that started in the late 1960s. And uh, so at the same time, we were getting reform in one area of desegregation, particularly in the South. I think policing became uh, much worse in the North. You know, that was the era when the, the notion of tough policing and uh, that was kind of glorified in, in, in films from that era where you see the, the policemen um, uh, behaving badly, let's put it that way, behaving brutally, and that that was considered necessary. Uh, so I think we got used to the notion that an arrest had to be made with violence, you know, slamming the arrestee against a car, uh, doing a number of things that that leads to the kind of um, activity that we saw uh, Chauvin uh, convicted of. Now he had to do that within. He had to do that within a culture that made it feel to him that this was within his power, and that this is what police do to people who don't comply. And so, when did when did that attitude start? I think it started during the 1960s. Mm. Do you have the sense that we are seeing signs of a, a backlash at this moment? Obviously. Uh, many Americans have uh, embraced the Black Lives Matter movement over the last year at a, a level that we hadn't seen before. Uh, but at the same time, uh, many Americans were also uh, uh, really uh, displeased with the level of violence that has occurred on the streets, some of the acts of uh, vandalism. So there there has been this uh, countervailing force as well. Uh, what are you looking for as, as a sign that that might gather strength? I don't I don't think I see this a sign of the backlash as it was in the 1960s. I think that what might happen would be uh, more of a political uh, backlash in terms of, you now we see it already in terms of voter suppression, you know, other kinds of ways of, of limiting the power to, to change society. Um, and, you know, it'll take a while to decide whether that, uh, 
you know, say the results of the election were just um, a blip and we go back to, you know, the, the kind of electorate that elected Trump in the first place, um, we'll see. You know, and, and I, as a historian, I, I kind of look at things over a long period of time and, uh, and kind of resist the notion that any significant change, particularly in America's racial policies, can take place within a short period of time. All right. Well, uh, uh, a bracing historical perspective that we just got right there. That, once again, was Claiborne Carson, a professor emeritus of history at Stanford and the founder of the university's Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. Professor Carson, thanks once again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Benconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.